Welcome to another episode of Congo Kids Life Stories, where I share my experiences of growing up in the Congo in Central Africa. My hope is you find knowledge, entertainment, information, and insight of another culture and a new perspective of the Congolese people and Africa. I've shared five episodes relating to the history of Congo. I've taken you from the Congo Free State in 1885, which was formed by King Leopold II from Belgium, where he exploited the people and the land for his personal gain. He stole from the land, rubber latex, and from the animal kingdom, ivory, and from the people by stealing their dignity and tearing apart their families. He killed millions of people, maimed tens of thousands of others by cutting off their feet and hands, and basically stole the souls of the people. Enter Belgium in 1908, which brought Congo in as a colony. This stopped the butchery, and it did create order, infrastructure, literacy, education, and some civilization to the people. The village life and culture was changed forever, though, as industrialization changed the village and the family dynamic. People moved to where the jobs were. Factories, mines, plantations, and other industries boomed as the Belgians exploited the country for its minerals, natural resources, and agricultural fruits. And the people were also fodder for labor and taxes. Then, in 1960, a hastily thrown together plan, if you even call it that, resulted in the newborn country, the Congo, gaining independence. The transition and baton passing from Belgium to the local government was doomed to fail, and fail it did in a royal fashion. The army mutinied in less than a week. There was the murder of the popular prime minister, Patrice Lumumba. There was a coup d'etat attempt by Joseph Mobutu, a communist rebel takeover of half the country, the hostage situation of over 2,000 Belgian, European, and American business people and missionaries in 1964 in Stanleyville. And it was President Lyndon Johnson that called in for the paratrooper rescue attempt that became the flashpoint of the battle between Western democracy and communism. And if not for Dr. Paul Carlson, a Christian missionary doctor who was unfortunately killed in the Congo massacre, I truly believe the rescue attempt would not have been made. Thus, the communist rebels would have advanced and further changed the political dynamics of Congo and the entire continent of Africa for that matter. Then, Joseph Mobutu pulled off another coup attempt in 1965 and succeeded, and thus began his 32-year reign as dictator. The man ruled with impunity. He was an amazing politician, knowing how to play the politics of the communist threat against the U.S. and other Western countries to milk them for money, aid, and support. Then he got the idea to further his grip on the country by changing the name to Zaire in 1971 and banning Western names and other references to Belgium or Europe. He pushed for authenticity. He politicized himself to be a savior and God to the people. Then that led to nationalizing all the businesses running the European operators of said businesses out of town. The economy started to crumble, which led to inflation. Not just inflation as we have experienced it in the U.S. from time to time, but inflation on steroids, often thousands of percent per year. The money was worthless in most cases, further crushing the average citizen and their lifestyle and upward mobility. Then the Shaba region tried to secede due to its mineral wealth, and Cuba brought in mercenaries through Angola to fight. Mobutu's ship started to sink in 1991 when the expatriates left the country again due to civil unrest. We then had Rwanda's genocide occurring in 1994, 
bringing a million people to be refugees for over two years in eastern Congo, disrupting that area. Mobutu hung in there for another few years with various forms of power sharing, trying to hold on to his power and influence, all until Laurent Kabila, the Simba rebel from the 1964 rebellion, finally was able to march to Kinshasa, the capital, and take over the country. Shortly thereafter, Mobutu died in Morocco. Then there were two civil wars resulting in millions dying by bullets, machetes, or disease from living in the forest for years at a time. Hope for a better president and regime was short-lived as Laurent Kabila followed suit with Mobutu's dictatorship style, and in some cases was worse. Then in 2001, he was assassinated. So in typical third world fashion, where there is a power vacuum created, somebody has to fill it. Enter Joseph Kabila, the 28-year-old son. He took power in the presidential palace. Areas of the country were ruled by various people, some decent and others horrible. So after finishing the stub period of dad's term, he then went on to conveniently, did you see the air quotes around the word conveniently, win the next two elections. Then in 2016, knowing he was going to be termed out, he tried to push the parliament to change the constitution to allow him more terms. The people wouldn't stand for it. So there was a year of political stall tactics and feet dragging. This resulted in riots in the streets and other pushbacks. He finally acquiesced to a vote in late 2018, and a fresh face named Felix Chisichetti became president. Of course, Joseph Kabila siphoned off millions from the treasury and set up his friends and family with all sorts of great gigs that proliferate today. I think I read that there's over $200 million unaccounted for. What a guy. So are things improving under the democratically elected Felix Chisichetti? I've asked Pete Ekstrand, a 40-year recently retired missionary to Congo, to give his perspective on the political situation. It's not been same old, same old. Initially, it looked to be that way, but he's been pushing back against Kabila, declaring, making steps to show his independence, um, working to fight corruption, which is one of the big issues in Congo. I'm not sure how well he's been doing, I'm not following that as closely anymore, but uh, there certainly have been positive steps. Nutwa Dami, a Congolese woman living and working in Congo, sees another aspect and shares her viewpoint. Now, there is more hope in a better government. The president has a desire to fix things, but he has headwinds. But yes, there is hope. Yet, in spite of changes in government leadership, it can and does seem hopeless for the average person that things will get better. What is the view of the present and future? Why have the people not united and risen up to demand a better government? There are several schools of thought. And Talabisa Dawena, a Congolese living in the U.S., but who goes to Congo several times a year, shares his. So people are really tired in a great way. And uh, not only because they are accepting the situation, it's just because they are powerless. They were powerless. Whenever the people, population, try to react against what is going on, they are crushed with the heaviest energy from both the Congolese army and also from the UN contingent that is there. They really crushed them down. Oh, the people are living in big malaise. I mean, the people are not happy. It's misery. It's misery. 
and that is reflected in the you know the what you feel in uh, it's just too much for them and um, the general feeling is that there is no hope some people will tell you not this generation Paul Noren who was born and raised in Congo and currently works there after 60 years shares his perspective so you have foreign money coming in to do something and then it doesn't do it the officials just steal all the money and put it in their pockets and go away with it. But their corruption in the country is so bad. That's one of the reasons the, the local people would say they, they don't know what to do about it. But it's time for them to, to, to be more outspoken about it somehow. But they haven't. They just haven't done it. Nutwa Dami weighs in. With numerous tribes and regions, there is a lot of division, so it's hard to get unity. If someone rises up, others bring them down. It's not in their hands. If someone gets a good idea and he gets to be a threat, they will tie his hands to prevent its success or might even kill him. With all this as part of the history, and with most people having experienced a good portion of this, how does the average Congolese stay positive in spite of a tough life and difficult circumstances? Where does their resiliency and acceptance come from? Paul Noren shares. I think the main thing is they don't know any better. That's really the main thing is that, well, they're tough people. They are resilient people. They're extremely resilient. We're talking about people who know how to work hard. We're talking about a culture that actually prides itself in, in they, have, they have great proverbs. The elephant never gets tired of carrying his tusks. Okay, in other words, those are heavy, but he carries them all around. He never complains about it. That's what a person is supposed to do with their family. That's what they're supposed to do with the burden in life. They're supposed to carry it and not complain about it. And the circumstances that they're given are just hard. They're really hard. And one of the problems is you have people doing middlemen type of work and people doing basic agriculture and that kind of stuff. Infrastructure falling apart. Uh, countries, you know, so people, they innovate and they do things by bicycle. And now more and more it's by motorcycle. And so they're making ends meet in various ways, but they can't really get ahead too well because of the way the, the government's still exploiting them worse than they ever did before. They're not cutting their hands off, but they're, um, they're trying to squeeze blood out of a turnip the best they can. And of course the Congolese, are really good at evading any kind of uh, contribution to the government if they find. <laughs> They're really good at getting away with it. And you can see where the government would be frustrated and any, anybody who's in the government there would be frustrated with how, the, how do you manage these people anyway? Because you got people who will do anything they can to go around you. Nutwa Dami gives her view explaining the resiliency of the Congolese spirit. I think the Congolese endure and live in the circumstances because that is the way it is. During the elections, the politicians promise all sorts of things, and they have learned to deal with the broken promises. The country is complex, with numerous regions, tribes, and languages. So if someone gets into leadership, they abuse the position and favor their family or people group. Talabisa Dawina responds to the same question about the toughness of the Congolese. I think personally when I was thinking about this, I think it is just because the Congolese people 
have never been exposed to be better than what they know or what is there for them. There's a whole generation that is going on now that all, the only thing they know is war. I mean, running in the bush and the, all that. It's now 20-something years that it has been happening. So it, it has been like that for, for a long time, for a long time. So always when there's a government, it's, it's a criminal gov- government against its own people. So I look back at the previous five episodes that stretch for almost 140 years. That's six generations of a people group that I've just thumbnailed for you right now. This has been a story of an epic people that started in 1885 who have been butchered, exploited, brutalized, suppressed, subject to dictators and despots, and lived lives of despair. Trying to wrap my head around this history, this story of the Congolese people, is extremely difficult, especially for me having grown up there and knowing the people and the culture the way I do. After hours and hours of research for these episodes, talking to and interviewing numerous people, which included former missionaries and Congolese alike, I want to be depressed. I have to look at these people and all that their culture and ancestors have endured, and also what Congolese currently are enduring during these horrible times of oppression, lack of opportunity, economic challenges, political injustices, and the like. I can't imagine how these people, after nearly 140 years and multiple generations, can continue to move forward and not just create a mass exodus out to greener pastures in other African countries, Europe, or the United States. So how do they keep a positive spirit in spite of the circumstances? Where is the hope for the present and the future? How do they find joy and happiness? Paul Noren shares his thoughts. Even though they're very, very poor for the most part, they do have good family structures and they enjoy being together. And, you know, it, it's like you, you've been in the village, you've seen, you've seen how people are and you think, boy, it looks really nice. I mean, this is, a, this is a good life in a lot of ways. They like to get good food when they can and, and enjoy that with their families. Uh, and the, the people are really struggling to get people to schools. I mean, they're really putting an, an emphasis on education in that country, which, which is good. You're getting a lot of people that are better and better educated, but there's no work for them to do because there's not a, it's not a developed country that can use those people at this particular point. So that's kind of sad. Then a guy gets, a guy, a guy's capable of doing this and that or the other. He's an engineer and he's got to go pull Sobe in his garden because there's no one to hire him. Even doctors, people who have graduated from med school, and they can't even find jobs right now, or they don't want to go out into a, you know someplace near Bosabolo or something like that because it's, it's too much of a hardship post. They want to be in Kinshasa or a bigger city. Pete Ekstrand sees it this way. Well, one example of joy is the joy people have in worship and singing and, and, and dancing. And you can see even parties out in the village which is not a church thing, it's, it's people are dancing, okay? But you, you can tell by the look on someone's face. You know, I've seen people raising their hands, but just their whole body is engaged in singing and the music and worshiping the Lord. It's full of joy. Joy in giving the little that they have in an offering. The church has had a deep impact on people in having hope for tomorrow. And I was talking with uh, Cindy about, you know, where, where's the people want education? They keep working hard to get their kids to go to school, to get their kids to come finish the next level of education, the next level of education. 
They want education because they believe that that's going to be providing a better future for them going forward. They're going to be able to get jobs, a better life. There's hope for that. And, and the constant phrase is, is talking about if God wills, trusting in the Lord to provide. And ourselves, when people would come to our, our door with, for, for various conversations, we'd pray for them at the end of the time of the conversation. Sometimes we may have given them some help or something like that. But we're always praying for God to provide for their needs beyond what we can imagine because we don't have any idea where, how God is going to provide it. But we're trusting in the Lord. And, and that's a lesson for us here in the United States who are so confident. I got my, all my stuff figured out and all the, the retirement plans and everything else figured out. Where's the trust in the Lord? And Congolese don't know. They're, they're going to school and they don't know how it's all going to be figured out. And I get frustrated with that sometimes because, like, how can you plan that way? They're called, they're inspired, and they, there's a deep faith. And out of that is the resilience to keep on. Here is Nutwa Dami's response to these questions. They find joy in their own things, like soccer for the children, music, or a side business, like raising chickens or animals. In spite of the difficult circumstances, they find happiness and joy in doing their own thing. While their side job might be small, it's their side job, and they enjoy trying to bring success. They can invest in that effort and find joy. Reflecting on these stories and this history, after my initial reaction of being depressed, I also look at these people, many of them my friends, and realize that in spite of what their forefathers have endured and what they're enduring now, I'm amazed. I'm amazed with their attitudes for living and their approach to their lives. I stand in awe of their acceptance of their plight, their contentment in their present state, which is just absolutely inspiring how they have learned to accept their lot in life, the proverbial cards that they drew, and are making the best of it in spite of being exploited at the hands of a few in power is difficult for me to understand. How do they find contentment in their circumstances, and how do they find happiness and joy when their political and economic futures look bleak? We have it so good here in the United States. And while a little thing can ruin someone's day here, that little thing wouldn't even move the needle on the hassle meter for a Congolese. So while the first five episodes of the History of Congo have painted a bleak and grim picture of what the people have endured, I want to reflect on the attitudes and approach to life that the people have in spite of their circumstances. How do they use the bonds of family to find joy and happiness? How have they come to accept their situation and decide that they will recognize that it's their life and will make the best of it? How have they developed the ability to endure suffering? Does the church provide a place for people to find peace, community, hope, and joy? Paul Noren thinks so. The church as a structure and as a, okay, so you have faith. You have faith in God and you have hope in the future. And that hope extends to daily living right now. I mean, that's, that's one of the big things. And it's a change of heart. And it's a change of lifestyle for a lot of people. They still have to, they still have to grow their, their food and everything else. But uh, hospitality and, and, and the way they treat other people, it all changes. And what the church has done, it's helped so many people as a, as a social network, in fact, in the villages. It's the big social network, which takes care of people one way or another. And so 
because of that organization too, that's a big help. This the church has been a really immense help to, to a lot of people. I asked this question to Pete Ekstrand, and he concurs. Oh no, there's something to say, and this is the message that we speak about in the churches here. It's learning to live with joy, with contentment, in all the different circumstances of life. And that's a message to the United States, to us here. That's a message for the church here, for everyone. Because the Congolese are doing that in much worse circumstances, difficulties where they got you know, family members dying and all kinds of just physical challenges and where they're living and everything else, and the government's not supporting them. And they have joy in worship. They aspire for better circumstances. They're working hard for that. They're giving themselves to that. And there's joy in worship. And I mean, I'm speaking to myself as I say that, because, you know, how do you have joy in the midst of difficulty? When I'm content, when I've got all this stuff, you know, I can't fathom how I can have that in the midst of difficulty. It would have to be in those difficult circumstances that I cry out to say, Lord, where does the joy come from? Fill me with joy somehow in worshiping you and make me content in this. Give me that deep sense of joy in the midst of challenges. So that's the good news. Nutwa Dami further supports the positive role the church has played. The church and God play a strong role in giving people hope for their future. Churches give hope, and with God, nothing is impossible. Even though things are broken, they can be fixed. Yes, people live in tough times. The joy is in God. And once a believer, that person may lose everything here on earth, but he has hope in eternity. And with that hope, the believer finds joy in their circumstances. So while this History of Congo series has painted a picture of difficult circumstances that the people have endured, hopefully this epilogue will give you, the listener, a respect for the tough environment the Congolese have endured. Furthermore, while it is unlikely that we in the United States will ever experience anything even close to the challenges the Congolese have faced, maybe, just maybe, it will give you a better perspective on your own life. My hope is you gain new appreciation on how blessed we are with our 24-hour electricity, hot and cold running water, political stability, plenty of food, and the assurance that the money in our bank or wallet won't be worthless next week due to hyperinflation. Furthermore, while there are political divides here in the U.S., and we may be loving the current administration or hating it or just indifferent to it, we are a constitutional republic and we are not controlled by a dictator, king, or a completely corrupt regime or corrupt military. Nor are there constant wars within our borders where millions of our fellow citizens are killed or forced to flee into the forest for self-preservation. Public service employees in the military do get paid, so we don't worry about soldiers shaking us down for money so that they can eat. I could go on. I want to wrap up this series on the history of Congo on a positive note. I want to honor the Congolese for their resiliency and their attitude in spite of the crummy circumstances. They keep on keeping on in spite of all the wars, political corruption, economic setbacks, and deteriorating infrastructure that has extended for multiple generations. Note this isn't one or two generations that have had it tough, and then prosperity and political stability ensues. No, as far back as the current Congolese can remember, or has heard stories being handed down through their grandparents and great-grandparents, life has been very harsh. 
and peace, true peace, for their basic existence has not really happened. I salute the Congolese. Living amongst them during my growing up years and watching them live with the challenges, and now staying in contact with my friends as they raise their families through multiple dictators, economic ruin, two civil wars that cost five or six million lives, makes me appreciate my blessings of living in America. I thank them for giving me a true sense of perspective and gratefulness when life throws something tough my way. I hope you, the listener, after listening to these episodes, will reflect on how blessed you are and thank God for the opportunities you have to live in peace and pursue your life as you choose. Paul sums this up well. Incredibly versatile. Making do. I mean, the, the whole article cans. Debrouillez-vous. They are great at doing that. I tell you that when other people would just say that this is impossible, for them it isn't. They, they keep going. They keep going. They invent. They, they come up with systems that work. And it's not turn, putting them into the modern world per se in some ways, although they're using more and more cell phones and that kind of stuff, yes. These people persevere in adversity with a smile on their face. I mean, they just keep going. Talabisa offers his final thoughts. The Congolese people, first of all, they don't have so much privileges like other people. So they have only one option for most of them, to be where they are. And to be where they are, they have to create it be mental, it be spiritual, it be, I mean, physical way of just accepting where they are. And that is one thing. Secondly, they really like their land. Congolese people are very proud of their land. I'll give you an example. When there was an earthquake in Goma in 2002, thousands of people flocked into Rwanda. And there they went and found the international community and the Rwandese people who had prepared villages of tents for the Congolese people. The Congolese people said, no, we are not staying here as refugees or in your tents. If you want to help us, go help us back at our house. Two days later, when it was, people were able to go and back and when the lava stopped, everybody went back. I mean, most of the people just walked back to Congo. So if you want to help us, come and help us in Congo, in our land. And that is one thing that is really exceptional to the Congolese people. That makes them resilient. They don't have an option, and they love their land. They love, they love where they are. So really, if they will give just some chances to be human where they are, they will do better. In conclusion, I want to say that this project has been very challenging and fulfilling for me personally, as I studied and researched and met some amazing people for this series. I've learned a considerable amount about the Democratic Republic of Congo that I didn't know, and learned a lot about myself and who I am because of my time living in Congo. I gained a deeper appreciation for the people. The country and the people will always be special to me, more so after telling these stories and walking through the history. Thank you for taking the journey with me for this series. And thanks to all the guests that I had on the five previous episodes to share their stories. And for this episode, a special thanks goes to Paul Noren, Talabisa Dawena, Nutwa Dami, and Pete Ekstrand for sharing their thoughts. And a special thank you to my friend Tim Snow, 
who gave me the idea for this series. We were talking one day, spitballing about topics for my podcast, when he said, You know what, Jeff? I don't know anything about the history of Congo. That would be really interesting. To which I responded, That's a great idea. It grew to be way bigger of a project than I thought it would be, but I have no regrets. First, it was to be a three-part series, then I changed it to four, then five. And then I realized I needed a conclusion to focus on the people themselves, which brings us to episode six of this series. I trust I portrayed the history in a fair manner, brought to life stories of real people, and properly portrayed the bad actors and the good actors, and honored the common man. I tried to weave in real people and their life experiences, showing their humanity and how they were impacted by Congo's history. And lastly, I hope my friend Tim is pleased with the result of the idea that he threw out to me one day last summer. The country has endured considerable hardship, but it's the people that have shown the true character in spite of their circumstances. The Congolese are a strong and resilient people who have persevered for generations. The church has played its part in keeping hope and perspective for all the believers. Besides learning interesting facts in the history of a distant African country called Congo, I hope you gained a respect and appreciation for this most epic group of people, the Congolese. Nakamwi mingi na makasi na bino na Congo. Translation, I am amazed at the strength of you people in Congo. May that be your takeaway from these six episodes from the series on The History of Congo. If somebody comes up to you and asks, what do you know about Congo? Instead of being virtually uninformed, your response will now be, I just listened to a podcast series on the history of Congo by Congo Kid. Going from King Leopold II's Congo Free State to Belgian colonization to independence, to Kasavubu, to Mobutu, to Kabila, to Kabila Jr., to Chisikati. I learned so much in this fascinating series. Ask me anything. In fact, let me tell you the history of Congo. So that concludes this episode. I hope you enjoyed it and will listen again. Other podcasts and blog articles on a variety of topics can be found at congokid.net. In addition, Congo Kids Life Stories are also posted on Apple iTunes, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. I'm Jeff Eels, a.k.a. Congo Kid, your humble host. Until next time, I will send you off with a farewell in Lingala. Baninganangai, tikalamalamu. My friends, stay well.